This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. A heads up to our listeners that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Markets and Security Services Outlook, a podcast mini-series exploring the critical topics that will shape our industry in the next decade, including sustainability, digitalization, and emerging markets. Find out what's driving the global outlook for institutional investors and where the opportunities and challenges lie. Thank you for joining us. Okay, well, hello, Uh, my name is Paul Ellis. I'm Global Product Head for Regulation, Tax and Trustee and Depository Services. And I'm delighted to be joined with Henry Rashen, Head of Regulatory Outlook for Security Services and HSBC. James Pomeroy, Global Economist, Global Research, HSBC. Richard Pounder, Global Head of Operational and Resilience Risk, Security Services, HSBC. Shay Lydon, Partner in the Asset Management Group in Matheson. Well, a very warm welcome to you all. So let's start off then with uh, ESG. And Shay, I'd like to turn to you in the first instance, if I may, because I think it's probably fair to say that policymakers in Europe are, pro- are perhaps seen as the front runners in certainly in terms of the quantum of ESG regulation. And you know, when we look at that, we sort of see that grouped in sort of almost like three kind of key pillars of the the policy objective. Firstly, to you know, require asset owners, asset managers to have robust controls that consider sustainability within their investment process, irregardless of whether the the end outcome is a sort of a, a an ESG product. But then, of course, if they are manufacturing a product that claims to be ESG, it needs to be proven to be just that. But of course, the the final sort of, if you like, the three legs of the stool of that policy approach is that issuers need to supply the relevant sustainable information to allow asset owners or asset managers discharge those obligations. Um, so I know obviously you engage a lot with uh, particularly asset managers, um, both in Europe and internationally, who've just been through probably the first phase of big sort of ESG regulation in Europe around, particularly around ESG disclosures. Um, so kind of interested in your experience really and w- dealing with those clients in terms of the opportunities and challenges that have been so far presented and perhaps what you think sort of, again, we're, suppose we're trying to think about this uh, panel mm-hmm. in a forward-looking basis, what's coming over the horizon and, and what should firms be thinking about? Sure, no problem at all. And, and thanks very much, Paul, for the invitation to participate today. Um, but I, I'll start, I guess, I'll back out of being a lawyer for a moment and start with the opportunities <laughs> rather than the challenges. Because uh, you know, it's worth taking a step back and just realizing, you know, why are we putting this this, this amount of effort into to ESG and, and, and meeting the, the requirements? I guess, uh, you know, ESG is just very much a growth area for investment allocations. In, in 2020, more than 50% of the inflows into European funds went to ESG-related strategies, depending how broadly it categorized, but, you know, it's a huge inflow. BlackRock has indicated that it had 40% inflows to sustainable use of last year, and the figure this year is higher at 58% year to date. And this is consistent with research that suggests that sustainable assets will triple to become over half of, of European funds in time. And there's a number of factors behind that. Europe has signed up to ensure all EU countries are carbon neutral by 2020, and that's driving its legislative agenda. President Biden in the US has committed to half greenhouse gases by 2030. So there's, there's a lot of impetus to push people towards ESG investment. 
social factors are relevant. Younger investors are focused on ESG and they're, they're voting with their investment decisions. And something that will drive this even further is that with some upcoming MIFID changes, investors will be asked up front whether they prefer to allocate only or substantially to sustainable investments. And in practice, when people are faced with that decision, it's a very easy thing in the abstract to say, yes, I would. And that means people will be pushed more and more towards these Article 8 and Article 9 products, which are the, the green or the light green and dark green products in European legislation. So, so in terms of opportunities, kind of drawing all that together, you know, what are they? One is that an ESG-focused approach will, will attract investments. You'll be positive. ESG products are positively received in industry. Bad practices, conversely, can be the subject of social media comments. And at least for the moment, there's a perception that people would pay a premium for ESG exposure. And it's not just about the feel-good factor of making an ESG investment. There's a wealth of research to indicate that ESG investor approaches will assist in enhancing returns. And you can see how that would play out, that as legislation generally around carbon or polluting industries impact and bite on those, those entities or, or more uh, sectors, that they'll, they'll, they'll struggle against those sectors which by comparison are, are really investing in and focused on sustainable industries by comparison. Um, and then lastly, um, there's, there's, you know, ESG investing isn't straightforward and that leads us on to the challenges. There's, there's a huge opportunity here for managers to distinguish themselves from the competitors. That could be in the clarity of their range or the vision they have in terms of their ESG products. It could be in their use of data and how they use data to construct portfolios because there's a lot of work to be done there. And indeed, there's potential even to build their own proprietary data models and if they're successful, to license them out to others. So you know, there, there's a huge opportunity there, but there's challenges and, and there, there's a number of them. I think the first one from a legal perspective in terms of what people are focused on, it's just the risk of getting it wrong. Like when we looked back at SFDR and, and level one when completed in March, there was, you know, there was updates to prospectuses to websites, to risk management procedures, to remuneration policies. The legislation, it, it's complex and it's been introduced on a phased basis. So people need to be thinking a couple of steps down the road in terms of what's coming. So we've got the European approach. We now have the UK approach, if that's you know, to the extent they're, they're moving away from taking on SFDR. We've got you know, the approaches in Asia and Hong Kong and elsewhere, and we've got the US approach. So people are looking at, you know, kind of to, to track all of these in different jurisdictions and to ensure some sort of global consistency. And even things like, you know, you know, if you look at the rating agencies, for example, different rating agencies can rate a given target investment in different ways. Some might regard this scoring well for, for, you know, for the social part of ESG, others might not. So trying to get that consistency is a real challenge. And then the final challenge I've seen is just the reality, at least in the short term, of increased costs. So there's a lot of data and expertise required. Uh, managers may need to draw in independent third parties in reviewing and verifying the data so they can stand over whatever allocations or whatever kind of investment decisions they've made and provide the comfort to investors. And there will be comfort and there will be support coming in the context of further legislation. So you've got the EU Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which will force the entities in which funds invest to give more information, which allows you then to pass on that information and makes it an easier task. But that's you know, still down the line, it's going to be two years after SFDR comes through. So there's a challenge in terms of doing that. So compliance and spending is going to be a, you know, a factor for everyone. I think that's kind of something to draw into the challenges as well. Right. So, I mean, I think to that point, I mean, I guess the, the regulator or the policymaker conundrum there is well, we want to achieve the outcomes. We want to get things, you know, you got to start, right, in an, in an environment where things aren't perfect. And I guess that's where Europe started, um, you know, but obviously, you know, to that point, there is some risk that kind of remains then for firms with the uncertainty. Um, James, I mean, I don't know, Shay's spoken a lot about there about the policymaker approach. Any views on, and we've talked a bit more about the European view there, any views you have that sort of support our kind of challenge, what uh, Shay has mentioned there? 
No, it's a shame. Made some really good points around how this is evolving. You've got the governments all over the world really care about environmental issues. There's a couple of reasons why. One is that we're in an economic hole at the moment. We need to get out of it. And that's going to mean a lot of investment. And where is a sensible place to invest? It's in the things you know you're going to have to do in the next 10, 15, 20 years because of climate change challenges, climate change commitments that different governments and cities themselves um, are making too. So what we should see in the coming years is much, much more investment and push um, from governments. Now, that's partly an economic um, decision, but it's also um, a social decision. It's, it's a political decision mm-hmm. because, as, as Shay alluded to, about young people wanting to invest uh, in ESG and, and those sorts of subject areas, they also vote on the back of them. And there's no surprise yeah. to, to me that you know, Joe Biden won an election where one of his flagship policies was around green energy and around environmental sustainability. And that is a policy angle that appeals to a lot of people. And I think what we're going to see in the coming years is many more governments governments and policymakers across the world keep pushing that angle because it's a good way of winning votes, growing the economy and doing things well. So this isn't a fad. It's not a trend. It's something that's got a long, long um, way to run, particularly when you look at the demographics of the global population and where that cohort of people who really care about this stuff is making up a bigger and bigger share of the electorate every single year. And so these issues are only going to get more important. Right. So, yeah, so I think so. <laughs> I think it sort of reinforced the point there that we're if, if wearing our regulatory hats. We've got a lot more regulation to come. I mean, Henry, do you, in terms of you obviously look at the outlook around the world as well, right? In terms of what I mentioned in my sort of introductory remarks, we see an emphasis on asset owners, asset managers having procedures to make sure they're considering sustainability in terms of the risk process that they, when they're making investment decisions. I mentioned, obviously, the need not to sort of to ensure if you're manufacturing ESG to have control so there's not the product's not greenwashed, but then also that the issuers, right? So the, and Shay mentioned this as well, so whether that be a corporation or the issuer of a bond, that they're supplying to the industry the relevant information to actually be able to do the, the assessment as to whether the investments are ESG or otherwise. Um, do you see a difference in terms of emphasis with policymakers on those three pillars of regulatory priority? I think there's a certain consensus uh, amongst regulators around the world in terms of the importance of the disclosures by issuers on this topic has very much grown up in the last 12 to 24 months. We see a lot of work being done on that. And the EU is certainly out in front, I think, from what we've been hearing uh, in terms of the investors' responsibilities in that direction as well, in terms of where they place their money. Uh, Looking outside the European Union, I might just very briefly, the United Kingdom, clearly not directly within the scope of the European regulations nowadays outside Brexit, uh, after Brexit. Uh, We've now got requirements upon premium listed companies um, for accounting periods beginning 1st January 2021 in terms of some of their disclosures on ESG matters. And uh, the FCA is going to be consulting shortly uh, on the subject of the task force for climate related financial disclosures um, as they will apply to asset managers, life insurers and some pension schemes in the UK. And that's going to be their way forward. I would say internationally also, probably very importantly, uh, we have the US and China talking now on what they're going to do. And so we had actually a discussion between John Kerry and Xi Zenhua, the envoys from both countries, in mid-April, coming out with a communique at the end on the importance of it all and driving forward the UN Framework Convention, the Paris Agreement, and looking forward very much to the COP26 or UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow in November. 
uh, to various matters that can be addressed there. And clearly, there are also other specific regulations now coming in in the United States now that we have the Biden administration and all the work being carried out and actually in MENAT, in the Middle East, North Africa and Turkey, um, and in Asia as well. Uh, particularly, I'd single out the um, People's Bank of China is work on the green taxonomy, where they're working alongside the EU for common ground. We've also got various other Asian countries involved in that. So a lot going on primarily in the issue of space. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for sharing those views, Henry. Um, so let's um, switch to digital now, if we may. Uh, obviously, this is a, a vast topic, and obviously our perimeter within that vast topic is around the sort of policymaker approach to it. So, But in the spirit of not trying to boil the ocean, we've selected two policy areas that we think uh, firms should pay particular attention to. Uh, firstly, the policymaker approach to crypto assets, and we're going to chat in particular about central bank digital currencies, but we're also going to talk about regulated firms' uh, digital operation resilience. So I want to take the crypto assets discussion first, going to you, James, on this one. So as we all know, coronavirus has, uh, has accelerated the world's move away uh, from cash um, in terms of our online spending using our credit cards. And now central banks are considering developing digital versions of the notes and coins that we have in our wallets and perhaps Sweden, the mainland China, perhaps the front runners there in terms of central bank digital currencies, uh, perhaps even this year. Um, but you're probably much better expert than I am on this. So where, where are we headed and what does this mean for asset managers and asset owners in your view? Yeah, you're quite right, Paul. Um, in terms of this shift away from cash, it's been pretty dramatic um, all over the world. And I think what you get to with cash usage is you hit tipping points. And essentially, as soon as businesses stop accepting cash, then people stop carrying cash around. They use it less, businesses stop accepting cash, and you get into this spiral. And that spiral really kicked off um, in March, April last year around the pandemic in most of the world. And that's what we've seen happen in Sweden over the past decade, um, taking the economy pretty much cashless. Um, for most intents and purposes, and um, by the time you know, about sort of 2016, 2017. Um, and that's why you know, digital payments are going to be a really, really interesting space going forward. Central banks are looking at this. They're looking at the rise of cryptocurrencies um, over the course of the past few years, in particularly the rallies we saw um, at the beginning of this year. And they're thinking about what they need to do. Now, we've argued that cryptocurrencies in their current form are unlikely to be a universally used means of payment. They're too volatile. Um, they're not good enough at processing enough transactions. And central banks almost have a duty to provide um, a means of payment that's, that's stable, that's secure, that's, that's able to be used digitally, I mean, is able to be accessed um, by everyone. There's a lot of decisions they've got to make, though. You know, we're very, very early in this journey. Um, you've got the mainland China, the PBOC, um, doing really, really good work on this, stepping up on their pilots. You've got Sweden's Riksbank doing a pilot too. We've had a central bank digital currency launched in the Bahamas, um, the sand dollar, um, if anyone's interested. And those, those pilots all have um, something in common, which is they're indirect, so they go through the banks, and um, so you don't direct with um, the central bank. Um, none of them appear to be interest-bearing at the moment, which has a big implication in terms of negative interest rates. It could mean that no negative interest rates are impossible um, in a central bank digital currency world. If you have a zero yielding, uh, unlimited central bank asset, well, goodbye negative interest rates. Um, and it creates some interesting questions about you know, what could you do with a much, much greater digital payments usage? Does this create some amazing data that policymakers can use? Does it create an environment that allows us to grow more quickly because we get all these productivity gains and that come out of it? So 
a lot of things can change in the economy and the way we think about monetary policy, but we're still some way off. Now, in, in China, yes, we could see these things um, be released into the general public in the course of 2021. Sweden, maybe next year, but the Bank of England, the ECB, the Fed, they're a long, long way behind. And it's probably you know three, four, five years until we see central bank digital currencies being widely used. But it is something we've got to get ready for because it's going to happen at some point in the next five, 10 years. Central bank digital currencies are going to be widely used. And I think it's, it's in all of our interest to learn more about them and to prepare for that arrival. Okay. Well, there's no ambiguity in your prediction there, uh, James. <laughs> uh, Richard, do you sometimes. want to come in there? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, thanks, James. I, I think there's an interesting um, relationship as well there with the, the practical side of what uh, having CBDCs has in there as well. So where we start to see them come into some of the funds and how then, as custodians in particular, we start to understand how we really provide custody service over um, some of those those digital assets. And I think that is an interesting thing. And, you know, to, to James's point around timeframes, there's definitely... Um, um, a long way to go before we have a strong, robust, you know, uh, industry-wide acceptance around how we do custody over those sorts of assets. But it does bring an extra dimension um, in the way that we can provide custody services. I think, which is which is an interesting thing. But that time frame is the important piece there as well. There's still a long road to go. True. I mean, I think uh, myself and Henry's experience internally dealing with our sort of our folks in the, our digital product development team is uh, they ask us about how, so how do you sort of interpret this in the context of the regulation? I mean, not many to sort of poop the party. I think that has been uh, always been a little bit challenging, right? Because it's been unclear and, and it probably needs me neatly into sort of the question I had for Shay, right? Because I think now we're starting to see, again, I, I just was going to take Europe as a proxy, but I don't I don't think it's a, an invalid proxy for the rest of the world in terms of we now have, we can see coming onto the rise in this markets and crypto assets regulation in Europe, um, where I think the, you know, there is clearly the intention to create greater definition of how we sort of consider these assets, crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, et cetera, stable coins. So, and I'm sure as a lawyer without uh, I mean, it's sort of flatter you on this one, Shay. You like legal certainty, right? So um, um, in terms of that regulation, what do you think or see within that as sort of the big developments that our, our clients should sort of be looking out for in terms of that emerging regulation? Sure, although I should probably give a clarification first. They're probably like the right legal certainty. People dive in too quickly, we get the wrong answer. It could, it could be dangerous too. Um, the Yeah, I think you're right in terms of the, you know, it, it, it's been a real challenge for people to try and figure out what is a, a crypto asset. You know, is it you know some form of a commodity? You know, is it kind of is it a financial instrument? How do you actually you know, how do you regard it as kind of the first stepping stone to actually deciding how what a product might look like? And and Mica is, is part of the European response to that. Um, so it stands for the the market in crypto assets regulation. And in, in many respects, it's a bit like the other MI MIFID uh, markets and financial instruments regulation. It, it's a similar sort of structure. It sets about creating a structure that allows for the regulation of crypto assets and the providers of crypto asset services. Uh, it allows them. It provides for a harmonised regime across Europe. It allows those crypto asset services providers to be regulated in their home jurisdiction. And as a result of that regulation, they then get the ability to passport their services across Europe and to provide into other jurisdictions. So you can see kind of the, the kind of the, the infrastructure or the MIFID kind of, you know, kind of constructs coming through there again. Um, it does have to go through. It's part of a proposal. It's part of a wider EU digital finance package. And there's an operational resiliency digital proposal in there as well. Uh, we'll have to go to the EU legislative process. The timeline is this stage looking like 2023. But even in 2023, there'll be a lead in period. There'll be kind of a transitional period we expect before people go, go through. Um, in terms of what the concepts are, yeah, you get the, the pan-European process uh, passport. 
that the quid pro quo is that you need to have an EU presence if you're a provider, you need to obtain an EU license, you need to comply with certain minimum prudential requirements, so that'd be minimum and ongoing capital requirements, for example, and you need to comply with minimum requirements in terms of risk management, uh, policy and procedures around conflicts, around complaints. So what at the moment is sometimes seen as being kind of the Wild West in terms of crypto, you can see how the, the regulators are taking you know, and expanding their existing rules and the legislators' existing rules in given member states and effectively stretching them to cover this new asset class and to provide a kind of a, a coherent regime. The challenge will be in kind of you know, how extensive that regime is and the sort of hoops people need to jump through in order to comply, but the coverage is coming. So there's always, there's always going to be that concern that uh, the regulation based on what we all know today in terms of the securities markets could perhaps trim the innovations. Was that's going to be the concern and, and why it's important for firms to play a part here? I don't know, Henry, do you want to add anything on, on that discussion quickly? I think that's um, pretty comprehensive. I mean, I think important to note, I was covering service providers and issuers. Um, a lot of points we've seen before from things like MIFID in terms of processes, uh, qualifications, conflicts of interest, licenses and capital requirements, as Shane mentioned. Also, one slightly newer one, I suppose, is the subject of, uh, in some cases, liability for lost assets and replacement of assets and points like that will certainly need to be watched when this is um, implemented. Okay. What would be the advantages for a retail investor in a developed country using a central bank digital currency? It's one of the biggest questions I'm asked is why bother, and, yeah. uh, and it's, it's one of those um, one of those things where you know, the developed market where we all have access to digital payments or most of the population have access to digital payments. Why would you rip up the plumbing and start again? You know, if in your house, if you've got hot water, you don't suddenly refit all the pipes, and that I think is a perfectly valid question. Um, the 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 answer is really in twofold. One is it making a better system. The technology has improved in a way that allows us now to build a finance network that is much more streamlined, much more efficient, uh, much quicker um, and cheaper. And actually, there's a there's a cost saving that comes out of this streamlining of digital payments if you can design it in the right way. That could be estimated at about half a percent of GDP, even in developed markets, and that's huge. Right. And I think actually that, that that's a substantial reason why um, we should start going down that route and why central banks are, are thinking about it. But if you're a person on the street, if you're an investor, if you're a consumer, if you're a retailer. Really, actually, the difference in your day-to-day interaction with payments between a central bank digital currency and what you have today is pretty negligible. You wouldn't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) You you wouldn't notice any difference. You still use your bank card or your mobile phone, and nothing really changes. The thing changes, though, for um, people who are paying fees. Now, essentially, if you think about all of those payment fees that exist within um, within the financial system, so be it small retailers paying card fees, be it you know, processing fees, transaction fees, all of those things, over time, technology is going to take those fees to zero. And I think that is a, that is that will provide a substantial uplift to economic activity because what you're going to see is all of the frictions drop out of the global economy. And I think that's really good news. But they're small enough individually that you think, is it worth doing all of this for this very, very small benefit. But actually, in some, those benefits could be quite transformational. And I know the question is about the developed world, but that's why in the emerging world, this could be really, really powerful. Because if you think about digital payments in in many emerging market countries, they're not used um, commonly because of these really, really high transaction costs. If you crush those transaction costs, suddenly digital payments become much more usable. That brings people into the banking system. Then you start really thinking about the other benefits that come from that, access to credit, savings, all of those those things. And this could be genuinely transformational um, for growth there. So I think that the benefits may feel quite small, um, but I think that they, they multiply quite quickly. 
Okay, thanks, James. Uh, I want to switch now. I mentioned, obviously, there's uh, we've really been talking about some of the benefits of digital, but obviously there's also the, the pitfalls for regulator firms of getting it wrong um, and really want to drill into the digital operational resilience because, again, the volume of financial regulation on this, I think, is significant and growing. 29th of March, FCA's rules and operational resilience, EC's, uh, Shay mentioned the Digital Operational Resilience Act, um, which is probably 2023 as well. But in between time, we've got guidelines on outsourcing to cloud service providers published on the 10th of May. Hong Kong has had similar uh, requirements on its licensed uh, firms around uh, using cloud. I think we've seen, Henry's mentioned other, we've seen a similar in sort of all around Middle East, et cetera. So it's pretty, there's a big long list essentially, I suppose I've overemphasized that point, but Richard, it's kind of the key question for me is what are the practical things firms need to do to prepare and probably even more so how big a step change is this in reality because i think we all like to think in regulated financial services we're well over on top of our resilience we've all been through the pandemic and we've stood up you know for the most part everyone's everything stood up pretty good right so so is there is there a big change and uh, do we need to be thinking more about this yeah, thanks, Paul. So I think, um, as you say, th- there is a, a risk that we underplay some of these re- uh, these regulations as they come through. I think there are a, a three sort of main fo- focus areas where I think there is going to need to be a bit of a step change across the industry. First of all, I think there's there's going to need to be a bit of a broader understanding between market participants when it comes to third party engagements, and and I would expect some level of coalescence around the questions we ask each other in particular so that we can demonstrate that we fully understand the environments of those third parties and that full uh, end-to-end supply chain that the so-called the nth party risk as it, as, as it is in there, particularly where there are elements of any outsourcing arrangements that are then put into digital um, activities by by those third parties to engage with. So I think that's one of the things we, sh- we, we need to move forward as part of the industry. I think the other one is um, is an obvious one to talk about, but the information technology and cybersecurity risk management is going to be a, a big focus in this space because, as obviously, as we put more and more into digital activity, um, uh, that it becomes then increasingly found, foundational about resilient services. So I think legacy, even things as obvious as legacy system upgrades and new IT implementation, that has to really consider in a very, very full way um, the full resilience from from project initiation. It's it's no longer going to think going to be acceptable of this sort of um, well we'll we'll just implement this system or this activity or this um, application. We need to really think about that full end to end resilience as it goes through. And then, which leads me on to the last one, really, of around substitutability. The Digital Operational Resilience Act specifically talks about some of the substitutability. And um, I think there is a risk in the industry at the moment that we move everything onto a digital platform and lose sight that, you know, where where and when things go wrong, because things like the um, UK policy statements for operational resilience, that specifically talks about stress testing and scenario testing of, of our processes and assumption that things will go wrong, that we have to plan for what those those fallback options are and it has to be again on the micro level as well as the macro level you know we i think we're quite good as an industry of of dealing on the macro level the the fires floods famines pandemics as we've been through but um i think there is more to do in the space of the micro level what in within our specific processes are the weak points what platform could go wrong what are we going to do to to bypass if we need to fall back from platform x to so that we can then provide those services into our into our clients. So I think those are probably three of the, the biggest ones and, and understanding that we we don't lose some of our operations staff. Um, we will always have operations staff to manage manual activity, but they form part of a fallback option for our digital operations. 
Okay. Uh, James, maybe coming to you, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to pick up the papers day in, day out, and there's such an emphasis now on cyber attacks. And uh, I mean, what's your view? Do you think policymakers are, clearly policymakers, I think, are, to, to the point we just discussed, are already sort of very focused on this, but do you think it's uh, it's going to grow in importance and an emphasis? Most definitely. Um, I, I think there's a couple of things that are important here. One is how quickly the general digitization of the economy has been accelerated again by the pandemic. It's just another one of those trends. Now, think about how much shopping's online today versus a year ago and think where it's going to be in 10 years' time. Well, we're sort of nudging to the idea that we went from about 15% uh, a year ago, up about 25% today, depends on where you are in the world, um, goes up to about 50% by 2030. Certainly, you're dealing with a lot more transactions going digitally. And that's just an example that's talking about you know, retail. Think about all the other transactions going digitally, all of those things. It's become a much, much bigger part of the economy, much, much bigger part of policymakers' sort of focus. And clearly, the risks um, grow as well, because you're dealing with a completely different type of crime, completely different type of um, um, risks that are out there. And policy is going to have to tighten up on that front too, just to because it becomes so, so much bigger. And I think there's a general underestimation in, in, in society about how digital the the broader economy is going to get over the next 10 years. And it becomes, I guess, very obvious when, when things go wrong. It's kind of immediate, yeah. right? So, <laughs> Richard, do you want to come back in on that? Well, yeah. I was just going to say, we've learned a lot, I think, over a couple of big incidents across the, uh, not just our industry, but things like Maersk and TSB are two that really jump to mind. And there, there is a real balance here between the cost that we spend on resilience versus the cost of actually doing business and all the rest of it. Like, you know, we, we talk a lot about things like network segmentation, for example, across our IT infrastructures, particularly in large organizations like, like HSBC and how we how we manage those two things. And to, to James's point, the more we go digital online, the more the reliance there is on digital products, the more we have to really factor in those resilient um, processes and where we segment the, the, the network versus where we have the resilience across uh, things like flat network structures. So, you know, on the technical sense, there are some very practical things to talk that, that we need to focus on to make sure that we have good resilient services, but equally are, are in, a, in a place where um, we're not spending all of our capital only on on those uh, those resiliency aspects. It's got to be a risk based decision on those. Yeah, I can see a lot, I can see a lot of challenge here in terms of in terms of a lot of judgment calls required around you know you know how, how far do you go right when when does sort of a, an outsourced service become something that's sort of critical or otherwise right and uh, obviously different regulators driving policy or regulations in a different way. But I think. Going back to part of my point at the start, I think if the sort of the policy assumption is regulators will obviously are really expecting firms to sort of be really at the top of their game here, that I think that's the sort of the guiding principle to sort of form, you know, to really refresh operating models around resilience, I guess. That's exactly it. And I think there's a there's a, um, a definite relationship. Whilst different regulators have subtly different views of what resilience really means to them, um, there is absolutely to go back to that word, sort of coalescence of, uh, or a Venn diagram of about 80% of the same stuff that we're going to have to look at. And, and those fundamentally are those building blocks of resilience, which is, do we understand, you know, substitutability, the backup recovery, fallback options? Do we design, build and test and release our, our systems properly with, you know, security measures in place and all that and um, good cybersecurity um, uh, protocols? You know, um, do we understand our third parties and do we have good controls in place to mitigate and manage any human error that sits within our operations team? So, yeah, I think it's those those base building blocks are absolutely going to be the foundations of what virtually all the regulators are looking at now. Okay, well, thank you for that, Richard. 
I would obviously sincerely like to thank uh, Henry, James, Richard and Shay for giving us the benefit of their expertise and valuable time today. I think we could have easily gone on guys for another another hour on these topics. So um, I think uh, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I'd also like to thank everybody for joining. This has been the Markets and Securities Services Outlook, a podcast mini-series produced especially for HSBC Global Viewpoint. To learn more about HSBC's markets and securities services offerings, visit gbm.hsbc.com forward slash solutions forward slash securities dash services. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.